You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben. Folks, Ben, do you want to tell the people at home about your first career trip to the penalty box this weekend? It's true. Sometimes, you know, you got to do what you got to do out there, and sometimes what you got to do is uh, trip a motherfucker right there on the ice, stop a breakaway. So what you what I'm hearing you saying is that in the Parks and Rec 35 and over men's hockey league no, this sometimes is not the 35 guy, and over league. Sometimes a guy needs to get his hands dirty. Well, I mean I will get my hands dirty in that league as well. I play in two different leagues. There's a 35 and over old man's league. There, you know, I don't want to break anybody's hip. I'm not trying to to send anybody to hospice care here. But in the other just regular all ages novice league I mean, yeah, it gets physical out there, and then you have to go sit in the penalty box. You want to know the really sad part about my trip to the penalty box, my first trip to the penalty box? Well, I feel like everything you've already said has been sad, but yes, tell me the saddest part, if you would. Uh, They're like, okay, you know, if you're tripping, number 15, there you go, you're going to the penalty box. I go over there, and I realize I don't know how to open the penalty box. I don't, I've never opened the little doors like on and off the ice because it's like it's open when you get on the ice to start the game. It's open by the time I get over there to get off the ice at the end of the game. When you're going, getting on the bench and off, you just hop right over the wall. And so I have to stand there like an idiot until the ref comes over and helps me open it. If ever there were a metaphor for the loss of your innocence on the ice, that's it, right? Well, I'm glad that you saw that for what it was. Yeah, I guess so. Like a grizzled referee had to come over. Like he was slipping you a condom. <laughs> wow, why did it go there? And be why like, here, kid, let me show you how to get the door open. So you had to get the door open. Now it takes on a whole different connotation. When you say you tripped him, what are we talking about here? Did you use your stick? Did you use your skate? Did you lay out and make a shoestring tackle? Well, basically, it was kind of drifting into a dangerous area in the ice where if he was going to get it before me, then he would be off on a breakaway. Uh, it was a close game, which also was my team's first tie this year, which... Doesn't seem like we are going to win many games, have not won a game yet, so the tie was pretty important to preserve at that point. And I basically used my stick to stop him from being able to reach out his stick, uh, and then his own stick got forced into his skates as I was hooking that back, and he, oh. he tripped over that. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Still a penalty. I Still have to go sit in the box and feel shame. I was about to anoint you like a novice league hockey thug, but that actually sounds borderline legit. Well, and then my team killed off the penalty, we preserved the tie, and uh, celebrated with some hams afterwards. So it was a pretty good night. New product alert. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by our pals at Fulton and Rourke. Just in time for the holidays, they've gone and dropped a couple new offerings for all your men's grooming needs. First off is the Sterling, the latest from Fulton and Rourke's limited reserve line of solid colognes. Let me tell y'all. It's their fastest selling of all time. With notes of tobacco, leather, and vanilla, Sterling is a fantastic fragrance for the winter months. But that's not all, right, Ben? That's right, Chad. Fulton & Rourke's new 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash has finally hit the open market. It lathers up with invigorating notes of rosemary and peppermint, then rinses away to reveal notes of cedar and sage. The combination formula is strong enough to cleanse away sweat, dirt, and product from your hair and skin without overdrying. 
Well, that sounds delightful. If you're looking for Christmas gifts for the dudes in your life, Fulton & Rourke has several different gift sets, including their holiday dop kit gift set. It comes with a bottle of their face wash, the new shampoo and body wash that Ben just told you about, travel-sized bars of soap, and their vaunted cleansing tool. All those are neatly packed up in their 100% American-made dop kit. The canvas and leather bag is a single needle stitched, is single needle stitched and made entirely of military American-grade spec materials. What does that mean? It means that whoever gets that dop kit is probably going to need to decide which grandchild will inherit that bad boy someday. Check it all out, as usual, over at FultonandRourke.com. We got music again this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out on Twitter, at The Fifth Element, on Facebook, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know, that's the letter A in The Fifth Element. Three rounds, as usual, in this week's co-main event podcast. And round number one, Alistair Overeem had to leave a self-addressed stamped envelope in Detroit last weekend. That way, if anybody finds his jaw, they can mail it back to him. And in round number two, we see you, Max Holloway. No, seriously, we can see you because your tie looks like it is made out of the re reflectors from a child's bicycle. And in round number three, what are you doing, Conor McGregor? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first, see, the, the, I can already tell we're headed in a certain direction here. <laughs> Why do you say that, Chad? The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Eric Cantona. Oh, yeah, Eric Cantona. Uh... Do you want to guess what Eric Cantona is known for doing for a living? I bet that he plays professional soccer. Uh, he is this first credit listed on Wikipedia is French actor. Oh, and former international footballer. Oh, okay, played for the French national team. Uh, also played for uh, Manchester United. So, uh, yeah, it looks pretty awesome in his Wikipedia photo, too. Nice to have him. He, he looks like a, an older gentleman, 51, according to Wikipedia. So it's nice to have uh, a little bit reach into the older demographic here on the CME. Eric Quintana writes, now that Eddie Alvarez has snatched the, quote, God of Violence title from Justin Gaethje with a knee from hell, sending him straight into the gray, not quite completely dark lands, can we please make this a thing? It's not necessary about winning and losing. It's not necessarily about winning and losing, although winning helps but just about the sheer level of violence you oppose, you impose on another fighter and your willingness to engage in a firefight. Now, Ben, obviously Eddie Alvarez and Justin Gaethje had a pretty pleasing scrap over the weekend. You come, when, you, when you come to these fights that, uh, that are arguably overhyped as going to be the most violent thing of all time, it's oftentimes difficult to live up to that hype. These guys had a pretty decent scrap. Alvarez ends up winning. Uh, you know if this was boxing that they, there would have been a literal god of violence belt, right? Right. One of yes. those guys would have walked out there with one of those green leather circle belts that boxing made that said something like god of violence ac across the stomach. You know, we talked about this last week about should we temper our enthusiasm for this fight? And I believe my answer was, hell no, I'm not tempering anything. I'm going to go ahead and get all the way pumped for it and risk the disappointment. And I was not the least bit disappointed. I mean... A three-round fight that still gives you a definitive ending and not a single boring moment in the fight, pretty much. I don't know what else you can possibly ask for. But as for the question about, like, you know, can we get more used to just accepting, like, hey, two guys went out there and put on an awesome fight. I mean, one guy won, one guy lost, but it's not like the guy who lost sucks. Uh, 
I mean, I'm all for that line of thinking, especially when you can get these awesome fights, and they're not going to see a whole ton of those just because it, not everybody is a Justin Gaethje and an Eddie Alvarez out there. But I also think that we sometimes want to think of it that way and then also want to have it both ways where we say, oh, this guy, you know, if Justin Gaethje goes out there and loses his next fight, then what are people going to say? Oh, he's lost two in a row. He wasn't that good to begin with. We want to do it right up until we don't, it seems. Or right up, you know, and the UFC wants to do it the same way. They want to give everybody credit for being a warrior and going out there and getting after it. Unless you want a new contract and then they're going to look at you and say, oh, but you lost this one. You got to win them all. So it seems like we can't quite decide consistently how we feel about that stuff. Eddie Alvarez gets the win. I wanted to talk a little bit about this, Ben. Make sure we talked about this uh, during the fight or about this fight. Where's what's Eddie Alvarez's legacy at this point? Obviously he's not done. He's going to continue fighting, but you look at this guy, former UFC champ, former Bellator champ, former Bodog champ, fought all over the damn world, laundry list of high profile victories, 29, five and one record. It seems to me like, and maybe this is just, maybe I'm succumbing to that modern uh, temptation to overvalue whatever the thing I just saw was. But, like, does it kind of seem like Eddie Alvarez, like the body of Eddie Alvarez's work is underrated in this sport at this point? Yeah, I think so. Especially because a lot of people are going to know him only from the UFC days. And, you know, his UFC run did not start off super great. He got in there and lost to Donald Cerrone, and this was after being that, you know, heated kind of bargaining chip, basically, between Bellator and the UFC uh, that looked like, you know, we're going to might be in a protracted court battle over. And he finally ends up in the UFC, loses his first fight there, um, but does become champion only to give it up to Conor McGregor right after that. And so I think that a lot of people are doing the opposite thing of only valuing what they saw last, meaning like his UFC run. But yeah, if he can go out there in a fight like this with Justin Gaethje and not only end up winning the fight, but make the kind of adjustments that he made in this fight and figure it out as he goes. Like That shows you that he is in that zone where he can go out there and put on a, a crackerjack of a fight, but he can also be smart about it. Yeah. And he can learn on the fly there and, and adjust what he's doing uh, accordingly. That Not a whole lot of people can do that. Yeah, I don't know how much of my own like uh, expectation and... Uh you know, analysis I'm in, imposing on what actually happened, but this sure looked like a fight to me that Eddie Alvarez knew he absolutely had to have. Like he goes out there and has the loss to Conor McGregor, uh, then the the uh, the no contest against Dustin Poirier, which we knew po we know Poirier's he's counting that as a win, right? Right. Uh, uh, it seemed to me like Eddie Alvarez knew, like, okay, I got to get like not that I wasn't serious about those previous fights but this is one I 100% need to have this needs to be the best possible Eddie Alvarez that I can be at the end of 2017 he looks like a million bucks uh he kind of I don't want to say that he outclassed Justin Gaethje but like he handled him well I think what he really did well was a lot of people said beforehand Justin Gaethje's low kicks are going to be a problem for Eddie Alvarez and they were you know you saw it several yeah. points in the fight and yet somehow did not really limit his mobility too much. You know, he, he at times he, his legs buckled. At times it seemed like, you know, his legs are just about to give out underneath him. Uh, but it seemed like the key adjustment that he kind of made was uh, adjusting to the way Justin Gaethje defends, how he'll kind of go into that shell and then pop out of the shell at any time and fire back with a, you know, a big hook or something at you. And realizing like, all right, the guy who's doing that is susceptible to body shots. 
because, you know, you can't just cover everything with that shell when you do it like that. Uh, and so that's what he did, and he chipped away at him over time, and it seemed like you could really see, even by the end of the first round, but especially like in the second and the third, that Justin Gaethje seemed like he was slowing down and just couldn't quite find Eddie Alvarez. You're, he's firing back at him, and uh, Alvarez's head movement uh, and just his quickness a little too much for Justin Gaethje, and just not allowing uh, Gaethje to be the one to be constantly pressuring the way he likes to break people. This god of violence business. I mean, I like it, and clearly there are guys that, that get into that stage of their careers, guys that become known kind of uh, not necessarily – only for putting on exciting fights, but guys who dependably put on exciting fights, your Diego Sanchez's, your Matt Brown's, your Donald Cerrone's, Robbie your Robbie Lawler's. Lawler's. Yeah. Uh, shit, you might as well call it the the Robbie Lawler Memorial, uh, Memorial title. Trophy. Although yeah. he's still going, so Memorial <laughs> title doesn't necessarily fit. But uh, uh, And I think Eddie Alvarez is kind of one of those dudes, especially during the early part of his career, he was, he was known to get in those blood and guts kind of wars. Uh, but it's also kind of a double-edged sword to be considered one of those guys, right? Like, uh, you're basically mortgaging your fu- future health for uh, to carve out this niche in the fight game. Uh, in some cases, to continue getting paid. In some cases, because it just seems to come so uh, goddamn natural to you that you can't do anything else. I would like to think that Eddie Alvarez still has a slightly higher ceiling than, like, slipping into hashtag fun fight uh domain entirely right but we've also seen that he does have another setting and it's the one he used against anthony pettis uh and against gilbert melendez which was not super popular with people i mean he won those fights i think both of them by split decision but did not uh exactly thrill anybody in the process and that's what kind of made people wonder about in some of his later fights is he going to try to do that again just kind of you know wall install tactic for lack of a better term so you have seen at times where he feel when he feels like okay I I got to have a win and this is one way I can get it he can do that it does make you wonder though what's he going to decide to do in the future because you know now you're 33 uh, you don't know if you're ever going to get another crack at the UFC lightweight title especially the way that division is going man. we don't know if anybody's ever going to no, get another crack there may at that never title. be another title shot that's not an interim title fight uh, but even if you do get a title you know you might need seven or eight in a row before you get a title shot so. What else are you supposed to do? Like, if you want to make yourself into, like, a marquee fighter uh, who the UFC really cares about and fans really care about, it seems like that's a, not a bad way to do it. What about that dude, Justin Ray Gaethje? He comes into the UFC, kind of establishes himself as a capital G guy with his TKO win over Michael Johnson. Uh, gets into this fight with Eddie Alvarez, clearly... Uh, had kind of like, even though he came in from World Series of Fighting already 17-0, and 0, a real meteoric rise to becoming uh, a fighter in the UFC that people were excited to see. Like, has a very exciting fight against Eddie Alvarez. Uh, my end impression was that it seemed like Eddie Alvarez, as you said, uh, could adapt on the fly and maybe like he had a few more tools in the toolbox than Justin Gaethje. Uh, his O had to go. There he is, 18-1 and 1 now. Do we think that like... uh I think pretty obviously his next fight is maybe a must win, but does, does the way that Eddie Alvarez uh, handled him confirm maybe our earlier suspicions about, well, let's just kind of wait and see on Justin Gaethje since we didn't know about the level of competition coming into the UFC. Yeah, but it doesn't seem, it's not like he got blown away or anything, you know? I mean, he, he fought a more experienced, savvy fighter, and I think that showed what was down the stretch. Uh, the difference in like their experience, not necessarily a difference in raw ability. I still think, you know, Gaethje could still be improving and will probably 
have plenty of stuff to improve on when he goes back and looks at this fight. I think that's the, the big question for me going forward is, is Justin Gaethje just going to be content to be kind of a, a brawler who wants to go out there and give you a fun fight and doesn't care if he wins or loses? Or is he going to be sitting down at the chalkboard after this and going, okay, where are the holes that I can close and still be fun but be an improving fighter? Next question this week comes to us from Dale Barnaby. You got anything on that? Uh, Dale Barnaby seems like it might be legit. The rare, possibly legitimate Coming Event Podcast emailer. He writes, Gentlemen, I feel torn about Cubby Sampson versus T-City. I don't really want to see either guy lose. But hey, why do I get the weird feeling the UFC might be banking on a victory for one Brian Patrick Ortega? Am I crazy or is Cubby on the outs somehow? Well, clearly Cubby Sampson is, is kind of disgruntled at the moment, I would think. Uh, gets passed over to uh, sub in to fight Max Holloway at UFC 218. Uh, there's, I think that there's been some talk he wants to fight out his contract. I don't necessarily know if he's on the outs, but it kind of seems like he maybe... Uh, is feeling a little less than loved, and I get sort of a uh, shrug vibe from the UFC. Well, what seems like might be happening, and it wouldn't be the first time that we've seen him kind of forced into this role, is the UFC is not maybe not sure how much more mileage you're going to get out of your boy Cubby Sampson, and you have some of these young fighters coming up. If they could beat somebody like him right about now, they make a name for themselves. Uh, remember, uh, Duho Choi, the, the Korean Superboy tried that same thing, had themselves a hell of a fight. Uh, but Cubby Sampson came out on the winning end of that one, uh, and basically said that thing like, Hey, you know, these young guys think they're going to come in here and make a name off me and I'm not done yet. Like I'm not at that point where you're just going to use me, uh, to step up to the next level. And I think that it's a fair way to look at this fight as a question of is, is he there yet now? Or is he there yet for your boy T city? Yeah, let's talk about Brian Ortega for a minute because I get the same vibe out of this fight. It does feel, especially after watching the uh, the promo advertisements during UFC 218, which were almost entirely focused on and narrated by Brian Ortega, uh, I get the vibe that this is one, uh, this is exactly what you said it is, like a fight where they want, they kind of want Brian Ortega to establish himself as an up-and-coming guy in, in this featherweight division. So let's talk about that for a minute. Because I loves me some T-City. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows it. But does Brian Ortega fit that role as like an up-and-coming guy when you consider, I believe he's done something that no one else has done in the history of the of the division or maybe even the history of the UFC, and that is have four consecutive third-round stoppage victories. Yes, which he mentions in that promo, by the way. And I was sitting there watching that with my wife, and she was like, wow, that is a specific stat for him to be keeping track of. It sounds like like in Bull Durham when the guy gets cut, and the first thing he says is something about how he led the club in ninth-inning doubles in the month of August. Kind of sounds like one of those kind of stats. Uh, and in several of those fights, it felt a little bit like he snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, right? So... Where are we at on Brian Ortega? Is he like the new grappling wizard? Is he the new Damian Maya? Is he a future UFC star? Or is he a guy that has just been kind of scraping by by the skin of his teeth uh, and, and a guy who uh, has been more lucky than good? Well, he ain't the new Damian Maya. So let's – I don't I don't see any T-City VHS tapes out there at the garage sales. Yet. I mean, he's Yet. 26 years old. Give the guy some time. Sure. Okay. Let him get a camcorder. Okay. Maybe he'll do that if he gets the win bonus here. You get the little date there at the bottom yeah. right hand corner of the screen. Uh I think it's kind of too soon to say exactly, but when you're 12 and 0 
And, you know, the one no contest because of uh, the draw standalone test, which we cannot overlook. But when you're undefeated like that, and even if you are winning in the third round and some close fights, we still, we got to give you the credit for going out there and not losing against, you know, a escalating series of competition uh, in the UFC. But the thing is, throwing him against Cubby Sampson, it feels like, well, are we excited about him as a potential contender because he is a fresh face for somebody uh, like Max Holloway, which that's one of the problems that you see right now for Featherweight going forward at, at Mac, for Max Holloway is that he his run to get to the title was so long and featured like such a, a win streak that once he gets there, feels like he's fought a lot of the people that there are to fight. Uh, and he, you know, fought Cub Swanson already, broke Cub Swanson's jaw, I believe. And so now you look at this fight and you think, well, if Brian Ortega is the one to come out of it, then you, you have something to build on there. You have like a fresh matchup. Next question this week comes to us from Tomas Rosicki. Oh, yeah, Tomas Rosicki. Do you want to guess uh, what what Tomas Rosicki does just as like a leisure time activity? Like maybe a, like, a, like a sporting activity? Uh, cricket? It's close. It's close. He plays the European football. Okay. That's the one where you only use your feet. That's right. That's that one. We're never getting this uh, dragon back in the bottle, are we? It <laughs> doesn't seem so, no. Tomas Rosicki, heavy sigh, writes, Has Henry Cejudo done enough over his last two fights to prove you wise old men that he deserves another crack at Mighty Mouse, or would you prefer the Tilly Dills super fight? Uh, ben, if there was a fight that arguably could have been considered a letdown, it was probably this flyweight contender fight at UFC 218 between Henry Cejudo and Sergio Pettis. I didn't hate it, because as I put on Twitter, it seemed to me like a nice little palate cleanser. Uh, between the violence of Eddie Alvarez versus Justin Gaethje and the violence we knew was to come again between Francis Ngannou and Alistair over him. Yeah. Though I would say even at that time, we didn't, we had, we didn't know the half. How we didn't know we how known? motherfucking violent shit was about to get. How could we possibly have known? But yeah, you, you got to catch your breath for three rounds with Henry Cejudo versus Sergio Pettis. But that's not necessarily a compliment. To Henry Cejudo. No, it is not. Right? You don't want people... You don't want to have the fight on the card where people were like, yeah, man, thanks for bringing the, uh, thanks for bringing the energy level back down yeah, to yeah. a reasonable I was level. able to go use the bathroom, uh, get a beer, uh, and yeah, I, I really appreciate you slowing down the breakneck pace that had been established. Yeah, the an simple answer for me is, no, he did not do enough in the last two fights to convince me. Uh, in part because... Demetrius Johnson beat him so soundly the first time. It wasn't like it was a super close fight. Uh, and while I think, you know, Henry Cejudo could probably make it a closer fight if they fought again, I'm not convinced he could beat Demetrius Johnson. Plus, right now, it just seems like Demetrius Johnson might be on the cusp of kind of breaking through a little bit. You start to see him show up at UFC events and he's up on the screen and people are getting a little excited about him. I feel like people may be on the verge of finally coming around and appreciating how awesome Demetrius Johnson is. But if he just goes back into rerun title defenses, which is what he's been doing for a long time, I think that you'll lose a lot of that momentum. If he fights Tilly Dills, that is some would-watch shit right there. Right, and not only all that, but it feels like kind of a singular opportunity right now for Demetrius Johnson and TJ Dillashaw. Like, we don't find ourselves in the situation where kind of like a, uh, a cross-divisional champion versus champion fight makes sense all that often. No. And here we've arrived at a crossroads where it seems to make all the sense in the world, where Demetrius Johnson doesn't necessarily have 
uh, a runaway flyweight 125 pound contender that we, we are, we're all just, uh, champing at the bit to see him go fight. And so it seems like it makes perfect sense to have him fight, uh, TJ Dillashaw right now. And even though Henry, Henry Cejudo was, uh, pretty impressive in his previous victory over Wilson Hayes, uh, you know, th- I think that this Sergio Pettis fight kind of reminded us who he was a little bit after the, the obtaining the high of that previous victory. And I think that you're right. It kind of seems like uh, we would all expect another walk in the park for Demetrius Johnson. If he fought Henry Cejudo again. And I think that the thing that people really want to see right now is Demetrius Johnson get challenged and see how he can respond to that. And clearly our best chance to get that at the moment, I think would be a fight with, with TJ Dillashaw question is where you do that fight. I mean, Dana White says that that fight is going to be what's happening next, and they haven't announced it. Uh, Henry Cejudo, I thought, had some interesting comments afterwards where he was saying, you know, he thought it would be a good thing if TJ Dillashaw came down to the flyweight division, but he also thinks you cut that extra 10 pounds and you don't stand a chance against Demetrius Johnson. Maybe at 135 it's a different fight, he said, but at 125, you know, you cut that extra weight and you're going to be feeling it the next day and you can't afford that against somebody like Johnson. Yeah, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and to me it seems awkward like, I don't know that there's a, a, a weight that where it's not awkward, you know. Uh, I kind of feel like the best case scenario might be Demetrius Johnson going up to 135. Like, uh, we know he can fight there. He was a pretty uh, successful bantamweight once upon a time before the advent of the flyweight division. And if Demetrius Johnson goes up to 135 and beats TJ Dillashaw, then you've got a huge uh, flag-in-the-sand sort of statement moment for Demetrius Johnson about how how good he actually is as a fighter. And if he goes up to 135 and loses, he can always, you know, the excuses kind of write themselves, right? The the uh, he can just always turn right back, right right back around and go back down to to flyweight and kind of pick up where he left off. Uh, and then you got an opportunity where things could even get even more interesting, where maybe T.J. Dillashaw decides he wants to chase him down there. I don't know. I don't know what would happen, but uh, I, I kind of feel 135 for this. Uh, do you disagree? No, I mean I, it is tough for us all to be in a moment at the MMA safety concerns where we're super concerned that extreme weight cuts are the most dangerous thing, but then also tell TJ Dillashaw to lose like an additional, like 7% of his body weight or something. So yeah, I mean, it would, it would make it a little conscience wise easier to watch if it were at 135. Next question this week comes to us from Brian Cummings who writes, I'm supposing you're going to speak plenty to the insanity at UFC 218. So I'll ask about the tough 26 finale and the immediate future of the UFC women's flyweight division. It was a fun card ending with Nico Montano winning a unanimous decision over Roxanne and then in quotes, Roxanne Mataferi to become the inaugural belt holder at 125. What do you guys suppose is the near future of the division? I felt 125 was needed for a long time, but too many fighters were giving away too much size to fight at 35 or cutting too much weight to get to 15. Any idea who may ultimately move to get to show what they can really do and perk up the top of the new division? Uh, thanks for your indulgence. Well, I, I think, Ben, we all know the uh, the most prominent names that we're all expecting to show up at the top of that flyweight division, right? Yeah, well... Some by choice, some by merit, I guess I would add. <laughs> who Who could you be referring to there? Well, I think by merit, you got your uh, Joanna Yajaychik's. Maybe. You got potentially your Valentina Shevchenko's. Maybe your Carolina Kovalkiewicz's. And then, uh, by choice, maybe you got your Paige Van Zandt's. There you go. That's what I thought you were getting at. Uh, interesting that when we're establishing a new, 
you know, weight class in between the two existing weight classes. And it does feel like, okay, finally, we're not making them choose between starving down or going up and fighting out of their, their usual depth. And then one of the finalists doesn't even make it to the scales. Yeah, that, that took some steam out of the already uh, somewhat tepid anticipation for the inaugural women's flyweight fight. Yeah, I mean, because it's what did you prove at that point then? You did this whole tournament to lead up to be like, all right, we're going to do this whole tournament on reality TV to get our two finalists, and then they'll fight for the belt. And that way, you know, you'll start with this proven champion who has gone through this uh, gauntlet to get there. And then you don't get that anyway. I mean, maybe this is where it's a good thing that nobody watches tough anymore because for all they knew, maybe these were the two finalists. Uh, if they don't pay attention to the websites and the broadcasts too closely. And maybe, you know, not a whole lot of people are going to watch the tough finale there that we mentioned before didn't have a whole lot going for it. So maybe they just, it just shows up in their lives and they think, okay, Nico Montano, that's the new, okay, fine. I can get a, I, I'm on board with that. Um, but it does seem like this is set up to just be yanked right away from her by another more experienced fighter from a different weight class. I want to squeeze this question in before we go on. Uh, last question this week from Andrew Millington. He writes, with the exception of Mike Perry, I'm super hyped for the next generation of UFC stars. <laughs> Ouch, going to single out Mike Perry there, huh? Francis Ngannou, Max Holloway, Darren Till, Rose Namajunas, and Tony Ferguson all bring something unique and wonderfully weird to the table. Do you think UFC slash Endeavor can actually do their job and promote these people outside of the rote of their rote archetypes. E.g., he's a monster, three exclamation points, that we've had before. Please discuss. Uh, now, I'm going to come out and agree with Andrew Millington here that we have developing, percolating, bubbling, an exciting crop of young UFC fighters that seem like, you know, if they got the right push, they might become modest pay-per-view draws for the UFC. I don't know that you have a Conor McGregor or a Ronda Rousey among this group ready to like take the pay-per-view world by storm. But I think everyone listed in this email uh, has the potential to become an in the bubble, hardcore MMA fan, fan favorite, like a relatively bankable star for the UFC. And one of the things that I like about this group, uh, maybe with the exception of Darren Till uh, is that it seems to me like the UFC has a good opportunity with this group to step outside the 18 to 34-year-old white guy demographic that it has been hitting hot grounders to uh, since the ad, like since the Fertitas took it over, right? right. Uh, with Francis Ngannou, Max Holloway, Rose Namajunas, Tony Ferguson, uh, you've got an opportunity to diversify a little bit in the kind of person that you are willing to really support with your money and your promotional power. Uh, and since the 18 to 34 year old white guy demographic seems to be kind of like, we got that taken care of right in the MMA world. This seems like uh, a good opportunity to me for the UFC to sort of like broaden its horizons and maybe bring uh, a more diverse set of fans uh, into the tent. Right. And then the question is, how do you do that? Uh, because if you look at what the UFC is doing, when it has an opportunity to feel like, okay, here, here's somebody that we're going to spotlight. Like, as you see the, the Toyo tires commercial that kept running during the, uh, the prelims of this, no. uh, where it's like people carrying tires and kicking tires and stuff like that, which, you know, doesn't have anything to do with what you would actually use fucking tires for. But you see some, uh, let's say, traits pop up again and again with who the UFC is using for these commercials. And I'm sure, you know, Toyo Tires has a say in some of this stuff. But, you know, you got pretty little Luke Rockhold and Paige Van Zant in there hitting these tires. And it's just like, okay, that's 
that's who we have in our heads, it seems, as the, from the UFC's perspective, as here are the people we want to push. And you see that in a lot of instances. And so is it a question of the UFC deciding, like, all right, when we have a choice for who to send to get on camera for something or who to put in a commercial, that we start choosing Francis Ngannou uh, and Max Holloway and stuff more? Or is it just, like, that you have to make them feel like a big, like I wrote a, a column today about how one of the things that we start, we had these conversations about, is this person a star yet? Is this person a star? And it, the, the thing that it seems like the UFC, I don't know if it intentionally forgets this or if it just, this is a function of how it operates the business. You know how you know who a star is in MMA? They're rich. They're making a whole bunch of fucking money to fight. Like that's why Conor McGregor is such a big deal because he is living fucking large. And he's out there with the suicide doors on his on a sports car jetting around Dublin. Like that is a inseparable part of the stardom like that comes from like prize fighting. If you want us to believe that somebody is a superstar, they can't be out here begging for a bonus. Like we we need to see that they are doing really well and that they are getting wealthy this way. Like if they're just living like a modest, you know, 40 to show and 40 to win kind of existence, it's really hard for you then to turn around and convince us that they're a star. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, as we've talked about on the show, you know, it seems like time and time again, a lot of times it feels like the UFC only knows one way to promote a fight. And I would add add to that that sometimes it, it seems like the UFC only knows one way to promote a fighter. And I think for years and years it was because the UFC was largely cast in the in the vision of uh, Lorenzo Fertitta and Dana White, right? They were the guys who were in charge of everything. Like, it's not an accident that Face the Pain was the, uh, was the theme song to the UFC. It was because the two guys who were largely responsible for the art direction... Uh, we're bro, bro type guys. Yes. And, and like, frankly, that the UFC historical, historically has been marketed to bro type guys successfully, really successfully, I would say. Uh, so I guess the big question for Endeavor, Hollywood star maker, uh, Endeavor is, can you figure out ways to market different people, uh, to different people? Right. Well, and, that's a good question too about the what is Endeavor going to do because we heard about this before that they had a lot of leverage that they could bring to this issue and a lot of different ways that – and one of the things they said was in their investor plan was, hey, we can cut a lot of the advertising and marketing staff and budget because uh, we have a lot of contacts and stuff that we can leverage inside the business. But I don't really see that happening yet. I mean is uh, – you know, Francis Ngannou going to show up on like a, a late night show? I mean, he kind of should. I think if people get a look at Francis Ngannou and then also you show him him knocking Alistair Overeem's head fucking off his shoulders, I think a lot of people are going to be like, whoa, that is something that I did not know was happening out there, but I might be interested in seeing it the next time it happens. Uh, but I don't know. It's so far, it seems like that change hasn't quite happened. Yeah, add that in with a lot of things that we thought might happen during the Endeavor era that so far seem to have not totally got off the launch pad. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That, in theory, comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. This week, Ben, folks, forgot to write it. It was a, it was a weird week. You say that's an accurate, an accurate description? You forgot to write it? It was a strange week. 
Made it to all the hockey games, though, right? I paid for those hockey games. I'm showing up. All right. Uh, it's going to come out this Friday, though, uh, so get on that. It's short. It's funny. It's informative. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. one of the co-main event podcast is brought to you by uncaged simply put uncaged is card for card the greatest mma game ever it's a physical two-player mma themed card game for people who love martial arts fighting video games and strategy card games like poker or magic the gathering choose from a growing cast of international fighters and fighting styles from all over the world and with many more on the horizon it plays similarly to arcade fighting games like street fighter or mortal Kombat, but it uses cards instead of buttons and joysticks to play it's perfect for those cold weather days when you and a group of friends just want to hunker down for a marathon game sesh that's right chad and uncaged players can select from a growing list of technique cards to punish their opponents with counter punches and body shots upcoming expansions are going to add even more styles and techniques which will make it already great user experience even better uncaged features a fast pace of play and great artwork on every card making it a hit for casual or hardcore fans of card games fighting games and or combat sports go online to uncaged-cards.com to get your order in for the holidays each box contains 50 technique cards such as punches kicks chokes and takedowns you also get the game manual, a level change token, and an official score pad. Uncaged makes a great holiday season gift for the MMA lover on your list. But remember, the only fighting style that matters is yours. Ben, what can even be said about what Francis Ngannou did to Alistair Overeem in a minute and 42 seconds in the co-main event of UFC 218? Jesus, it was just ungodly. It like, was one of the ugliest heavyweight knockouts in a long time. Just one of the ugliest knockouts I've ever seen. It just like there was a a dumb part of my brain where when it happened was like Alistair Overeem's head flew off. It must have. There's well, no way his head could still be on his body after that. I mean, and as cartoonish as that sounds, I feel like for a couple minutes there, uh, especially with Joe Rogan giving us a very graphic blow by blow about what was going on with Alistair Overeem, it felt legitimate to worry about the health and safety of Alistair Overeem. Uh, because even in mixed martial arts, we seldom see a guy get stroked like that and then be out cold, even if it's just for a couple minutes. And as we know, uh, Overeem was able to come back, congratulate Francis Ngannou in the cage after this thing was over, and then later tweeted, uh, no damage, that he was fine, he's just going to take some time off and then and then get back to yeah, the Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure something like that has no consequences whatsoever, no repercussions, uh, if you're a cartoon character. Well, it, and it, 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 you get a safe dropped on your head. That's basically what happened to him. I know, I was just going to say, like... It kind of like we talk about the fragility of of like health and the human body in this sport a lot. Uh, it also this particular knockout uh, kind of reinforced uh, the durability of the human frame a little bit because well, the temporary like, durability, the near term durability. Well, yeah, but it's like he, uh, to see Alistair Overeem get knocked out like that and have him then a few minutes later be on his feet, like slapping slapping five and telling everybody good good job. Like he's I thought was come remarkable. Back from the dead. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. But, I mean, I think there is a conversation to be had at some point about that's 
a lot of damage Alistair Overeem has taken. I mean, he's had a super long career when you think about it. Like, he started fighting in, like, 1999, uh, has fought in kickboxing and MMA. I believe he's got, like, you know, three knockout losses or so in kickboxing. Uh, and I think that was his 11th knockout loss in MMA, which all, you know, that stuff takes a toll. Like, it's not, like, even if you can pop up right afterwards as if, you can get your brain knocked around like that and have it not do anything. Like that's just one thing we have learned in the last like 10 years of brain research is that it just doesn't happen that way. Jesus, how, how many more of these can Alistair Overeem really take, especially fighting at heavyweight? Well then, and if you wanted Francis Ngannou to go out there and solidify his position as like one of the hottest prospects that we've seen come along in the heavyweight division in a long time, he certainly did that with this performance. Not only do you get one of the most terrifying highlight reel knockouts that we've seen in this sport for a long time, but you also get like a really complete and good performance from Francis Ngannou, stuffed a takedown from Alistair Overeem, reversed him along the fence, looked uh, athletic and able on his feet, uh, good head movement, pumping the jab, and then... At the moment of the knockout, you could see Alistair Overeem throw that left hand that he threw that, that kind of doubles him over, puts him in this awkward position. And if you watch the replay, you can see Francis Ngannou look at him and realize, okay, I know the punch I'm going to throw at this guy now. And then he knocks Alistair Overeem out with basically the same punch that he threw to knock out Andre Arlovsky yeah. on the other side with the other hand, which, by the way, this time around, was Francis Ngannou's weak hand. Well, yeah, but this one, the, the Arlovsky punch was a little shorter and in closer contact. This one seemed to come from like three rows back. Yeah, he took this one out of his back pocket for sure. Yeah, and then, you know, launches Alistair over, like pretty much knocks a big man up into the air and back onto his back and then adds that other hammer fist on the way down before... Uh, the ref can get in there and stop him. I mean, that that was just shockingly brutal. And does it in a fight where he really, aside from maybe hurting his hand, took no real damage. You know, Alistair Overeem tried to get in close early, tried to clinch him a little bit, and then got kind of immediately turned around and reversed there. Didn't really get any offense off on Francis Ngannou. If you were hoping to see Francis Ngannou tested against like, a savvy veteran fighter, you didn't get that here. Do you feel like you have a better sense of like what Francis Ngannou is capable? Like, does this coming out of this fight? Do you think, okay, he definitely murders Stipe, or do you just think like, well, we haven't seen him fight anybody like Stipe yet? Well, I think Francis Ngannou versus Stipe Miocic is an unbelievable heavyweight title fight, and is the sort of fight for the UFC heavyweight championship that it feels like the heavyweight division should give us all the time, and it's very seldom does. I feel like. It is a remarkable fight for the heavyweight championship. And, you know, you want, I want to stop short of like hyperbole and saying on paper, greatest UFC heavyweight title fight of all time. But like, I think it's definitely up there. It definitely deserves to be on the list with, you know, the Kane Velasquez, Junior Dos Santos saga or, uh, Brock Lesnar, Kane Velasquez or, or, you know, any of the heavyweight title fights that going into them, like, we were hotly anticipating and seemed like they were going to be great fights. Uh, and to answer your question about whether or not we learned anything about Francis Ngannou leading up to the fight, you know, I talked to Patrick Wyman and a bunch of uh, several other people about Francis Ngannou and Patrick Wyman kind of said, 
this fight could get interesting if it goes a long time. Like Alistair Overeem has all the craft in the world. If he's able to like get into a game plan against Francis Ngannou, uh, then Ngannou's inexperience might come to the fore uh, and we could have, you know, he could have some trouble. And I think if, if anything like this, this fight reinforced to me, that's way easier said than done. Cause if you go out, well, we've, we've seen Alistair Overeem get knocked out. But we've never seen it like this before. We've never seen it this violent. We've never seen it happen this fast. Uh, and for it just made, like, if we learned anything, I think we learned that Francis Ngannou is even more dangerous than we thought he was and that he can go out there and swing with the best guys in this division and, and arguably still be as successful. What do you think Stipe Miocic thinks when he sees this fight? I think the asking price just went up, <laughs> right? Because that was that's been the sticking point with Miocic, right? He's Dana been, White claims that the negotiations are going well and they'll get it out, sorted right. out soon. But Miocic's thing has been that he earned less than both of his previous uh, UFC heavyweight title challengers, right? Well, and if that's the issue, maybe the UFC uses this because if you figure what Nganu is earning, it's probably not a whole lot at this point. Like he is probably a really good deal for the UFC right now. You know, Alistair Overeem. I think that his last recorded payout in the fight before this one, he made 800 grand to show. Just 800 grand to step into the octagon. So I can see with, if Stipe Umiocic is looking at a guy getting paid like that and you're not, and you're the champ, that you would think, like, okay, something's wrong with this picture. Francis Ngannou is, what, like six fights and two years into his UFC career. Uh, his first fight, I think, is the only one where there was the, a, where a payday was public. He made 12 grand to show and then eight grand to win. Uh, so obviously he's gone up from there now, but if you told me that he is doing 40 and 40 or even 50 and 50, I would not find that hard to believe, uh, which is a fucking steal for the UFC because you look at everything about this guy and it seems like if you can't make him into a bankable star, then you don't deserve to be called a promoter. How can you not turn this guy into something? I will also just go ahead and throw out there that, as you know, no one has ever successfully defended the UFC heavyweight championship more than twice. And this will be Stipe Miocic's third heavyweight title defense. That's scary. So, I, just, I just got more scared for Stipe. I mean, it almost like knowing what we know about the UFC heavyweight division, it almost seems like too impossible of a dream that this fight will ever even come off, right? There will be a motorcycle wreck. Or uh, bizarre lower intestinal disease will Do strike. Do I need to remind you that Stipe is a goddamn firefighter? Okay, yep, there you go. Like, that's now it's starting to seem all too... I was just joking, and now it's starting to seem all too real. Yeah. Just name your way that something bad could happen to Stipe before this fight could actually materialize. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two? Sure. Well, Ben, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me is uh, Francis Ngannou related, so I will go first. It is the rare. May, this could be a first time on the co-main event podcast. That's exciting. Because my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to myself. What? Like, if, as the listeners of this show know, a couple weeks ago I was in Las Vegas reporting this story about Francis Ngannou that came out this week on Bleacher Report. Good story, by the way. Thank you. Uh, while I was there, I was hanging out at Francis Ngannou's house, and his head coach, Fernand Lopez, was there, uh, and a couple of his training partners were hanging out. There's one guy like hanging out there. I I didn't I, I kept looking at him. I was like, this guy looks familiar, but I don't I can't place him. Oh, I believe I, don't, I, 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 I don't believe really you know. described him as an off-brand Glover Tashira. He looked like Glover Tashira, but I was like, it's not Glover Tashira. Okay, we're like hanging out. I shook his hand. We like chatted for a couple minutes, and then you know we didn't say much to each other. I ended up leaving. Uh, Saturday night, UFC 218. Francis Ngannou's doing his walkout, and I see that this guy is in his corner, and then he is identified on the broadcast as Jerome LeBanner. 
one of the greatest modern kickboxers of all time. So are you fucking kidding me? To me, professional combat sports reporter Chad Dundas, hanging out with Jerome LeBanner. No, I had no fucking idea. No, just no idea. Could have got a quote from Jerome LeBanner about Francis Ngannou. Would have been nice. Never even crossed my mind that this was a guy that I, that I should be aware of. Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? That's what you get for not watching more K1 I videos guess. in I guess. 3 a.m. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? I don't know if you saw this from the prelims where Felice Herrig and Courtney Casey had themselves a fight. Uh, and, you know, pretty close fight. Pretty... You know, not a, not a whole lot of significant action. Uh, and then in the end, we do the thing where uh, the Fox Sports cameras cut away to like a wide shot of the arena and the cage the a couple times. Just making cotton candy. Yeah. With the cotton candy machine. Yeah. Just to let you know that everything is going perfectly fine and nothing weird happened. Uh, and, you know, could mean anything. And yet it seems so consistent. What it means is basically that the fighters are flashing each other the bird. Uh, they kind of took turns on that one. But then... But the real are you fucking kidding me is, is that Courtney Casey, if you find a, you know, a GIF or a video from a non FS1 American feed, appears to like take some blood off her face and throw it kind of in Fleece Herrig's direction, which, and according to uh, ESPN's Brett Akimoto, the blood had a glob-like consistency, Ugh. what Fleece Herrig later described as a blood booger Ugh. that she took off her own face and threw in the direction of her opponent, which... That's got to be a foul, right? You can't throw your own blood at people. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Also, it's just gross. Don't do that. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Round two of this week's co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by the good people at Freshly. Freshly is the new meal delivery service that ships prepared fresh meals straight to your door. Freshly does all the prep, leaving you no shopping, no chopping, no cleanup. At this point, if you haven't gone online to sign up for Freshly, I'm not sure what you're doing with yourself. That's right, Chad. All you have to do is go to Freshly.com, sign up for one of their four different meal plans, select your meals for the week from the rotating menu, and Freshly sends them directly to you in a refrigerated box. And all you have to do is heat and eat. Each fresh meal is ready to go in about three minutes, so they're perfect for people who live their lives on the go. Freshly is an easy and convenient option for eating healthier every day, and it tastes great. A fridge full of fresh meals for the week? Hard to argue with that. Every meal Freshly prepares is 100% all natural with no artificial flavors or preservatives, no refined sugar, and no gluten. On top of that, right now, Freshly is offering some real savings exclusively for co-main event podcast listeners. Just go to the website, Freshly.com, and use the promo code MAINEVENT. That's main event, all one word, no spaces, no capitals, to not only get $20 off your first order, but $20 off your second order, too. That's $40 in savings just for you, exclusively for being a friend of the CME. Just go to Freshly.com today to get started. So, Ben, Jerome Max Holloway goes out there in the main event of UFC 218 and does the damn thing all over again with Jose Aldo uh, in terms of uh, the ending of the fight. Looked kind of like the general structure of the first time they fought, although this time I would argue even more impressive performance from Max Holloway and the kind of performance where it seemed to me like Max Holloway had the attitude of, I got to do this shit again, because it seemed like he knew what Jose Aldo brought to the table. He knew 
the power he knew, the punching technique, what Jose Aldo was going to do, and he just waded through all of it en route to what, a third-round stoppage victory? Yeah, well, you know, the on paper it looks kind of identical because they're both third-round stoppage victories, but I think, I think this one was different because the first one it seemed like there were moments where Max Holloway was a little bit hurt by Jose Aldo, and this one it seemed like he was just kind of disdainful of everything Jose Aldo could do. Even when Jose Aldo's landing good shots and doing good stuff, it just never seemed like there was a moment where Max Holloway was at all worried about him. And, like, he wanted this. He wanted to bait him into this kind of a fight where he just, let's both stand here and throw everything we got at one another because he felt like he could withstand that and Aldo couldn't. And he ends up being completely right because that's how he breaks him finally in the third round. You know, he's kind of getting to him a little bit in the a little bit in the first and a little bit more in the second one. But in the third round, the way he gets to him is kind of pace and pressure and just being like, all right, hey, I'm going to come forward. You throw with what you got and I'm going to throw right back at you. And Aldo was connecting. Like he was landing some pretty good shots and Holloway just walked through it and kept coming. Uh, and this one I thought you could really see just in Jose Aldo's uh, response when he was being hurt. Like it felt like he realized what this was. Like this is this could be your last good kick at the can. And he, you know, he did not want to be stopped there. He did not want out of that fight at all. He was trying to do every last little thing he could to keep it going just a little while longer and give himself a chance. And he just couldn't. Yeah. And for Jose Aldo, uh as we have remarked before, shockingly only 31 years old, uh, you know, he's one in three now in his last four fights, but you got the back-to-back losses to Max Holloway and then the, the knockout to Conor McGregor at UFC 194. In the middle of all of that is his unanimous decision win over Frankie Edgar. It's hard for me when I watch Jose Aldo go out there and fight, especially in this fight, it's hard for me to decide, to decide if I feel like he has lost a step or if he's just out there with Max Holloway and Max Holloway is the best in the world right now because clearly Jose Aldo still looks like a capable dude. Uh, he, he doesn't look washed up, but he also, you know, he doesn't look like the terrifying killer that he was, especially during his run with the WEC featherweight title. And then with his, you know, with his lengthy run with the UFC featherweight title. Uh, do you feel like Jose Aldo offers, offers less now than he did at one time or is Max Holloway just that good? I think those, some of those shots that he landed would have put other featherweights down. I, I don't know if it's a, I mean, I'm sure there, there might be a little of both going on there, but I think one of the things you saw, like when Jose Aldo was fighting guys like Chad Mendez or Frankie Edgar is that he could create a, a situation for them where there was no good option. Like if you stand at a distance with him, he's going to kick you to shreds. Uh, and if you try to rush him and really come in hard on him, he's going to hurt you on the way in. And, you know, you saw him do it in a bunch of different ways to Frankie Edgar at that UFC 200 fight. And when he tried to do it against Max Holloway, it just didn't work. Like, it just, it did not convince Max Holloway to do anything differently. And he just kept that pressure on him, which, that is one of the things that we kind of knew about Jose Aldo, is that if you push him, that, you know, you can find hit the limits of his cardio. You can get him tired, and then you can really start to hurt him. And you could see that uh, when Holloway started really putting on him, you know, his his mouth is open, He's he's clearly... Uh, fatigue there, and that played a role, I think, in the stoppage. But a lot of the other opponents who tried to count on that, they couldn't find a way to push him hard enough to really get him there to where they could take advantage of it. And Max Holloway could, in part because, you know, he just, he was not hurt by anything Aldo did, and he j- used it to his advantage. He wants him to open up so that he can come back. 
Max Holloway's 12th win in a row in the UFC, which is insane. Uh, just 26 years old, hasn't lost since that unanimous decision defeat by Conor McGregor way back in August of 2013. And I guess as an addendum to that, I would note, despite the loss, that very young green Max Holloway, one of only two guys in the UFC to, to go the distance with Conor McGregor. So, uh, you know, you can't, you can't paint it as a win, but also for a guy that was still very much on the come up, maybe not as bad of a performance as we might have thought as it happened. Uh, am I wrong to think, you know, Max Holloway's definitely on the list from Andrew Millington early in the show as one of the UFC's young guns, uh, potential stars. It doesn't feel to me like the UFC is as excited about Max Holloway as it, as it was about a guy like, uh, Cody Garbrandt prior to his loss to Dillashaw for the bantamweight title, uh, or a guy maybe like Francis Ngannou. Uh, am I just, is that just, am I wrong about that? Or does it seem like, like Max Holloway needs a little something extra to put himself over the top, like to even get himself to a BJ Penn level of stardom, just to use the, you know, the guy from the same state as Max Holloway. Yeah, but it feels like whenever you listen to Max Holloway talk, I feel like it's there. You know, the, his his ability, he's he's fun, he's interesting. Like he has this ability to kind of promote himself, but in like his own way. It's not just like an over the top bragging kind of way. But him talking about like, oh, all these contenders are cupcakes, and I and I I want to taste every single one of them. And you know, and everybody who climbs up to the top of this division, I'm going to send you back down with a loss. And just like. I mean, yeah, this is, this is fun stuff. I like the, you know, the specific kind of swagger that he brings to it. Also, he's going to show up in some kind of weird ass sci-fi tie, uh, which I'm into. Like, I feel like he's, he has his own way of doing this. I don't, maybe it's just that the UFC needs to give him a bigger spotlight so that more people see how awesome he is. Yeah. I feel like one of the things he could really benefit from would be, uh, a highly publicized and perhaps multi-fight blood feud with the right opponent. You know, when you think about all of these people in the UFC that have obtained some kind of star status, many of them had foils. Many of them had opponents that uh, you could position as as their greatest adversary. Ronda Rousey had Misha Tate. Uh, Conor McGregor has had Jose Aldo and Nate Diaz. Uh, you know, Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell were obviously two sides of the same coin. BJ Penn had uh, George St. Pierre. Uh, you know, Michael Bisping had everybody. Michael Bisping had every single person who's ever been born. Uh, it feels like Max Holloway needs the same thing. And we kind of talked about this earlier in the show just because his run up to the title was so long and he beat so many contenders. It's hard to look at this featherweight division and, and like, and say that guy, that's the guy who's going to get Max Holloway over the top. Do you see a contender in this division? Uh, that could be Max Holloway's greatest rival or are we just kind of hanging around? maybe in the hopes that a, a fight with Conor McGregor could happen at some point, either at, I mean, probably at 155 uh, or or what? Yeah, I was actually a little bit saddened to realize that the thing that everybody was talking the most about was a Twitter exchange between Max Holloway and Conor McGregor after that. Because, it, A, I would be really surprised if that fight ever happens. Like, it's just hard for me to imagine Conor McGregor... You know, he comes back to the UFC and the opponent we choose for him is Max Holloway. Again, because it would have to happen at 155. I don't see Conor McGregor ever making 145 pounds in the rest of his life. Uh, so it just felt like, why are we wasting time with this? And also sad that that is like the most attention Max Holloway can get. After he goes out there and beats the breaks off of Jose Aldo for the second time in six months, the most kind of mainstream attention he gets is by firing off a couple tweets back and forth with Conor McGregor, that's kind of depressing to me. 
any chance it could be Frankie Edgar, just because Frankie Edgar was originally booked in this fight, had to pull out with an injury. Uh, we obviously don't know where the featherweight division is going after this, but if they rebooked Holloway with Edgar, I wouldn't be that surprised. It seems like kind of an obvious move. Obviously, Edgar, Edgar's getting a little long in the tooth. He's 36 years old, but he's still obviously a capable fighter. Uh, any chance Max Holloway and Frankie Edgar could be the the marquee attraction? Well, if you're looking for a blood feud, though, which one of them do you see escalating it and making it personal? Yeah, that's a good point. They're both they're both kind of all business. Right. And, you know, Max Holloway is, is a little bit more fun, I think, in some of his trash talk. But even then, it's going to be hard to, like, push old man Edgar's buttons enough to get him to fire back with something. He's just going to peer over the top of the newspaper and then, you know, go back to reading about pork futures. Right. But I think Frankie Edgar has a little bit of that sort of Randy Couture appeal where he's not going to trash talk you that much. Uh, we're going to kind of, like, think of him as a good guy and then... If he were to beat Max Holloway, I assume it would be a takedown-based 25-minute grind uh, where he just kind of takes every ounce of energy and, and everything that Max Holloway has to offer and ends up, you know, winning a unanimous decision. Uh, so I think it could work from that regard. It's just I'm, I'm really only throwing him out here there because I feel like he's next. And if you look around the featherweight division, I just don't know if you see a person that shapes up as like, uh, titanic opponent for Max Holloway. You know, you could get uh, the winner of, of Cub Swanson and Brian Ortega, but uh, well, I don't know. I don't know, man. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't have to be a volume business for Max Holloway. That's true. That's true. It, you know, with the guy like Demetrius, Demetrius Johnson, we've learned you get into that business. Takes a lot of volume. Yeah. Takes a lot of volume. You could be there a while. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, I think it's safe to say that things haven't become any more stable for Conor McGregor since a couple weeks ago when we asked exactly how worried we should be getting about the UFC's superstar lightweight champion. Uh, in the past week, we've had a high profile, I guess it's still just a rumor, right? That Conor McGregor was in a an altercation down the pub. Remember when I said you can't let Conor McGregor go down the pub with the with the lads? I think you said you can't let him go out to the fights with the lads, but same principle yeah, applies. Same, same principle applies. Uh, an alleged in, encounter between Conor McGregor and members of the uh, Irish mafia and drug cartel, uh, what is it, the Kinahan mob? Am I saying that correctly? I don't You're know. asking the wrong guy. I don't, I don't even know. Uh, but uh, a tabloid sensation, I guess, over there across the pond and a lot of extenuating circumstances, a lot of questions being asked. At this point, again, about exactly what is going on with Conor McGregor. And then you've got Dana White coming out and saying uh, he doesn't know if Conor McGregor will ever fight again, which historically is the kind of thing Dana White says to you if uh, contract negotiations are not going that well. We just don't know uh, what is happening with Conor McGregor right now. But given a couple weeks to let to let the story breathe since the last time we talked about it, it seems like things have gotten somewhat worse. It does seem like that, doesn't it? It also seems like if you're waiting for things to get bad enough or like serious enough, 
where Conor McGregor will at least publicly betray some sign of backing off or pumping the brakes a little bit. Haven't gotten there because you show up to court late where like the judge basically has to yell at your lawyer to come get you. You show up then in your sweatsuit. You roll out of court, jump in your six-figure sports car while telling them to come get me, and then you zoom off, which always a nice touch when you're leaving court on speeding charges. It just, like, I don't know if it's Conor McGregor, like maybe privately he's worried, uh, but publicly it seems like the message he's sending is, we're just going to keep doing this yeah, because I'm not really hitting any serious resistance yet. Uh, there's a pretty good blow-by-blow blow account from Kareem Zidane, not surprisingly, since Kareem Zidane just seems to crush home runs every time out. Uh, a pretty good explainer, I guess you would say, about the world of the of the Irish mob and drug cartels and how it intersects with the fighting world. Uh, and then the, the recent alleged encounter between conor mcgregor and some members of a cartel over on bloodyelbow.com this past week the headline is mcgregor madness the quote-unquote celebrity and the irish gangsters if you want to google it uh but it kind of sounds like maybe conor mcgregor and his crew are out wilding down the pub right gets into an altercation some punches are thrown and in some way uh he struck the father of a of a connected guy, right? Of a made guy. I don't know if it was an accident. I don't know if it was a, if it was on purpose. Uh, but anyway, that's the rumor. And then there are further rumors that, uh, the Irish mob is sort of trying to extort Conor McGregor. I believe it was, a an overseas tabloid that said that they want 900,000 pounds in order to, that sounds like a lot of pounds, to leave him alone. Uh, and, and a weird figure if you were just going to make it up, right? The fact that like the, the figure it's not a million. The figure nine hundred thousand pounds makes me feel like it's true because if you were gonna make up the lie, why would you say nine hundred thousand well, pounds? How would you calculate the money that like it's not like you why not just go have an actuarial million? table? Why not just go one million? Nine hundred thousand. Maybe then you feel a little too Doctor Evil about it. What a weird thing that would be though. Like even as weird as this sport can get, and even all the things we think we've seen. We have yet, it seems, to see a major superstar murdered by the mob. So, is that where we're headed? Is that seriously something we are talking about here? Also, like, where where are all the people around Conor McGregor to, you know, regardless of how much of this is true and how much it might be embellished, here's where if I am, you know, one of the many people kind of advising and guiding Conor McGregor's career, I started to get worried because this just seems like a pattern of behavior that cannot possibly end well. Yeah. You know, we spent a lot of time as like journalists, uh, just observers of this sport as a group. We spent a lot of time during Conor McGregor's rise, sort of playing Conor McGregor as a genius of some kind and everything that came out of his mouth. We just acted like he's spinning gold. From a loom. Has he right? been wrong yet? Right. Like, just like we sort of endowed him with this sort of mystic Mac quality of, of just like he's, oh, Conor McGregor's one step ahead of everyone else all the time. And now it seems like in the wake of the biggest payday of his career and like this huge spectacle 
against Floyd Mayweather Jr., which I guess if you're Conor McGregor from a monetary and promotional standpoint, you probably consider to be an extreme success, even though you got beat up and you lost uh, by 10th round TKO, you probably consider it a success. And now it seems like he is poised for the most cliche possible ending for a combat sports superstar. Even if this stuff about the Irish mob is just a rumor, like it seems like he's kind of out of control and listing towards some kind of John Jones style flame out, which makes me think like if that's what you're doing, and I'm sure that the pitfalls of celebrity and fame and money are greater than any, any that we could possibly imagine. And if I had the kind of money that Conor McGregor had at the same age, I would probably not be here right now alive. I probably wouldn't be talking to you. I know that for sure. Well, I, maybe we'd both be better off. I'm just saying. But it just seems like for the guy that we played off as a genius for a few years, Conor McGregor is about to like have the most cliched uh, fall of a combat sports superstar, which to me seems like maybe we were wrong to call him a genius over and over again. Or maybe it's just that it's not mutually exclusive. I mean, I'm not saying that he necessarily is or is not a genius, but like you said, I think that the the problem of having so much fame and money at a young age and also being somebody who a lot of other people are looking at you as their meal ticket right now. And so who's going to be the one to tell you to get your shit together? Like, I think you kind of need that in your life if you're in that position and yet there are a lot of reasons for everybody else to just play along with whatever you want to do and kind of enable it and not draw a hard line with you because they rely on you. I mean, like there are people who whose entire careers are going to be built off of you. So who's going to be the one to just be like, you know what, you are you are a problem for yourself. And it doesn't seem like that's happened so far. And even with the UFC, when it seems like, you know, you come up and ask Dana White, like, hey, what's going on with Conor McGregor? And he's like, hey, man, I don't know. Guess we hope he comes back. I I heard he was recently booked to fight at the end of the year event. That doesn't seem like that was at all close to true, you know. And then he was pulled as a punishment, and now you're looking at him and going like, "Hey, who knows if we'll ever see the guy again?" Like that just seems like you need somebody there to help that guy out in this position. Yeah, it's just a bizarre situation to be in at this point with the Conor McGregor fighting career. Uh I hope that he gets it together and that we get to see him fight some more and that above and beyond that, that uh, he is not, in fact, trending toward disaster uh, because, you know, he's such a unique individual, uh, just had a baby, seems, you know, uh, a guy who who brought a, a special uh, little something extra to the fight game. It'd be, it'd be weird to just see him, you know, just disappear at this point after making his millions, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. You want to do uh, just saying stuff, then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying. You know, you may have noticed that way down there on the the fight pass prelims uh, of UFC 218, we saw Angela Magana once again in the UFC cage losing her fifth straight professional fight in the UFC. Or not not in the UFC, but using her fifth straight uh, overall uh, her third straight in the UFC. Uh, then there was her one fight loss on the Ultimate Fighter. And then I go to Twitter, where I see Angela Magana first claiming sexism uh, in the stoppage, saying that, uh, you know, it, 
if she were a man, the referee would have let her continue to get beat by Amanda Cooper for longer, even though she was dominated pretty much the entire fight. Also, I want to read to you this tweet. There are no losers in MMA at this level. Can you really call Oliveira a loser because he tapped to strikes? Whoever gets hit with an elbow like that is smart to tap out. What if you got caught like Overeem? Call him whatever, but you've got to have balls to get in there. Separate tweet. Also, Gaethje a loser? Or look at Jose. I had joy when seeing his beautiful slipping, headwork pivots, boxing, and that familiar leg kick. Max is a killer and smelled that blood, making him even hungrier. You can look at any matchup, and no way was there a loser. I'm just saying, that is a convenient position to adopt after you have lost your fifth consecutive professional fight and you, your last win was in 2011. I'm just saying. Just saying. There are no losers, says the person who cannot win. Well, Ben, I'm sure you've either heard about or read the much ballyhooed response to UFC 218 from a columnist in the Detroit Free Press this past week. Oh, yeah. Uh, I guess this week I'm just saying, you know what, there were some... There were some viable and good points in that article, I think mostly about uh, the idea that perhaps the UFC's overall production has grown a little bit stale. They haven't updated it in several years. But I guess I'm just saying, when you begin your article in one of the first couple paragraphs by writing that you felt the UFC 218 lacked a quote-unquote wow factor on the same night that we saw Francis Ngannou knock Alistair Overeem's head clean off his shoulders and into the first row. That kind of makes me feel like you made, might've wrote that before that fight happened. I'm just saying, or like maybe you didn't watch or something just because I don't know how you come away from this event, even amid all of the good points to be made saying that there was no wow factor just doesn't make sense to me. It makes me feel like maybe this writer came to UFC 218 with some preconceived notions about what he was going to write. Or like maybe the guy they sent to write about MMA really just does not like any sort of combat sports. Just saying. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for the uh, this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at this fight night card featuring Cub Swanson and Brian Ortega. And then we will look ahead to UFC on Fox 26, headlined by none other than Robert Glenn Lawler. Versus Rafael Dos Anjos. So that'll be a good one. Oh, Mike Perry on this card, too. Against Santiago Ponzanibio. There you go. So that's happening. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You kind of like if you sent me to write about a car race, and then kind of halfway through the article, you learn that uh, I don't care for cars. I'm not a car guy. You know what the tell is in the Detroit Free Press article? It's the part where he says that he asked Dana White before the event how he felt the UFC's. Live show production had evolved since the last time we did.